cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, November 22nd, 2011. I don't think it's set in that this is the last normal broadcast of the week. (laughs) What am I going to do with myself? I know, I'll spend time with my family. Sounds like fun. Mm-mm. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said out there about God, and it just doesn't make a hoot of sense. And the reason why it doesn't make a hoot of sense is because God has revealed so much about himself, not everything, of course. I mean, you know, that that would be a well that's too deep to plumb the depths of. In fact, I think it would be infinitely impossible to do so. But what God has revealed about himself is sufficient. It's knowable. It's understandable. As a result of it, um, there's like no excuse whatsoever for a pastor to be preaching stuff that's contrary to God's word. In fact, that's a, a spiritual crime of the of the highest degree. And in fact, what I'll do uh, on today's uh, sermon review... Um, I will be reading a segment from uh, the uh, the the prophet Jeremiah, and uh, where you know what's interesting about the story of Jeremiah. It's it's really um it's really a bleak story. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah is like one of the final, 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 very last prophets that God sends to the nation of Israel uh, prior to God judging the people of Israel. In fact, uh, you know, he's there as the as the uh, army of of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar is right outside the gates of Jerusalem. Uh and God sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem. Why? <laughs> well, when you read the story, if you haven't read the prophet Jeremiah lately, okay? Um those of you who follow me on Facebook and Twitter know that uh that uh, I I send out a daily uh, status update that links to a page that I set up on a daily basis over at my Letter of Mark blog. 
uh, that uh, has scripture readings, psalms that you can pray every day, and uh, as well as catechesis and uh, a review of some good confessional stuff, good confessions, if you would. Um, uh, ha- first of all, dealing with the uh, the, uh, the the creeds, the uh, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Athanasian Creed, as well as I. <laughs> I put up uh, the uh, a large portion of the Augsburg Confession on a regular basis. Why? Because I think that that's a, a correct exposition of what God's Word really teaches. But uh, the idea is this: is that uh, if you follow me and you and you've been reading along with the the status updates that I've been sending there on a daily basis, then uh, we've read through copious uh, amounts of the prophet Jeremiah in the last month. Now, not the whole thing. Now. Um, if, but if you haven't been following along on that, and if you're looking for a good book to read of Scripture and to spend some time studying, may I recommend uh, it? You know, beginning today <laughs> or tomorrow, however you want to do this, work your way through the prophet Jeremiah. Um, uh, work your way through the prophet Jeremiah, and um, and you know, although it's. <laughs> Yeah, try to finish up halfway through December at the very latest and then get into the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a wonderful prophet to be reading during Advent. Uh, but the the idea here is is this. When you, you think of what happened in Israel uh, with God judging the Israelites, and the reason why he judged them is because they despised his word, abandoned the covenant, and started worshiping and serving other gods. Now, if you're familiar with Israel's history and also the biblical history here, it's not that the people of Israel were not religious. They were very religious. When you read the prophet Jeremiah, it becomes very clear that the people in Israel were extremely religious. The problem is... The religion that they had concocted was a syncretism of uh, the, of the, basically Baal, Asherah, worship of the sun, moon, and stars mixed together with Judaism. And as a result of it, God wouldn't have anything to do with that. And and so, you know, there were I mean, there were lying prophets. I mean, the morality was at an all time low in Israel and God judged them. But read the prophet Jeremiah. And what's interesting uh, as you're reading it, uh, things are just bleak, (laughs) like really, really, really bleak. Uh, for the first like 30 chapters. And then all of a sudden around chapter 30, 31, there's a marked difference. And the marked difference is this. God steps in. Okay. It's not, it's no longer just the prophet Jeremiah saying, thus saith the Lord, repent or do this or whatever. God steps in and he begins judging some of these false prophets and got to tell you, um, God's judgment against those false prophets is severe. In one passage, he refers to them as madmen. As in another passage, he basically says that what these false prophets have done is outrageous in Israel. And so we'll take a look at that uh, today uh, during the sermon review time, what I'm going to be doing in, I'm going to be reviewing in hour number two, a Stephen Furtick sermon. And uh, th- this is one that uh, I spent a lot of time kind of debating back and forth within myself as to whether or not I really wanted to uh, review the sermon. 
why number one i don't really enjoy uh i don't enjoy constantly talking about a particular uh pastor uh, i try to mix it up so because i'm trying it you, Just a little bit of a a personal confession. I'm trying to address the broader problems in evangelicalism, but from time to time, uh, the broader problems in evangelicalism, for lack of a better way of putting it, always seem to find themselves at the doorstep of a particular pastor or two or three. Stephen Furtick is uh, one of these guys who, like I said, I've met him. Uh, We don't get along. Um, We've talked over the phone. But the conversation was pretty much one-sided, him doing the talking. Um, This is a person whom I would love to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation with privately. This is a gentleman who, if I could plead with him, it would be this one thing. Get out of the way and stop preaching about yourself and twisting every text to be about you. You haven't had a vision from God. You haven't. You are self-deluded. You are like the false prophets that infested Israel prior to the uh, Israel's judgment. A lot of the things that you say divulge the fact that you are a narcissistic madman, and you need to repent and be forgiven and preach Christ. Now, the reason I picked this particular sermon is because it's just flat-out awful. One of the primary texts in Scripture that informs us about the fact that really the Bible is about Jesus and not you, it's about Jesus and what he's done from beginning to end. It's about Christ. One of the primary passages is uh, found in the gospel story of the road to Emmaus uh, you know, on Resurrection Day, on Easter Sunday, if you would. Um, and I kid you not. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, Stephen Sir Furtick preached a sermon on this text, and he made it about himself. And what he did with this text is quintessential. It is an absolute perfect specimen of the narcissistic incurvatus and say a hermeneutic that uh, Stephen Furtick employs, and 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 that's at the heart of his theology. And we're going incurvatus sensei. Incurvatus sensei basically is the Latin f- phrase for bent in or curved in on oneself. And Stephen Furtick is curved in on himself like you wouldn't believe. And so I'm going to spend some time working through this sermon. Number one, in, in the hopes that Stephen Furtick would listen to it and and that God would give him eyes to see and ears to hear. One of the scariest things that uh, Jesus re, uh, quotes from the prophet Isaiah and the Apostle Paul, when you read uh, in the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul would uh, go into a town to uh, preach the gospel, he'd always start in the synagogue, and he would usually end... Uh, with the uh, with the words of the prophet Isaiah about and don't be like those who are stiff-necked who have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Uh, my biggest fear for Stephen Furtick is that he is one of those types of guys. He has eyes but he doesn't see. He has ears but he doesn't hear. The only thing he sees and hears is himself, and that's what comes through in his preaching. It came through loud and clear. In that Elevation Church documentary that uh, was uh, published you know, for free for a little while on the internet, but now you have to actually pay for it. But um, you know, the, you know, the, my point being when that when that thing came out, that uh, we we got a big problem because uh, that story was about Stephen Furtick. It wasn't about Jesus Christ. 
This is a guy who literally planted a church, what, six, maybe seven years ago? And, I mean, apparently he's the the world's most successful pastor. You know, he's, he's he, you know, he's performing miracles that would put Jesus to shame, apparently. I mean, that's the way the story is told. And so that's what we're going to do in hour number two. We're going to be reviewing a Stephen Furtick sermon uh, where he's, the biblical text is the story of the road to Emmaus. The name of the sermon, by the way, is Blessed and Broken, Blessed and Broken. And it was preached uh, on November 5th of this year, so not you know, just a couple of weeks ago. So um, as far as the other stuff that we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I think the hard part for me is that um, uh, this being the uh, the last normal program before uh, the Thanksgiving break, <laughs> I want to get it all in, but I'm not going to be able to get it all in. And so I'm just, you know, I'm just going to roll with it. And I mean, there's uh, there's several stories that I want to get to. I don't know if I'll get to all of them, but um, rather than uh, rather than trying to figure out what I'm what I could potentially get to, I've decided instead to just you know have a seat, make yourself comfortable. We're going to dive into the program proper, and I don't know what stories I'm going to pick. I I, I think I know what I'm going to lead off with. But where I go from here is going to be strong, basically dependent on what I end up saying as a result of <laughs> what it is that I'm playing. So we've got a, a bizarre thing that I'm going to be looking at. Uh, we've got uh, some interesting news stories. And one of the things for sure I want to get to is uh, Michael Horton's piece on what is the mission of the church. So make yourself comfortable, fuzzy bunny slippers that the weather, weather permits in your neck of the woods. Fighting for the Faith is listened to, um, you know, I, I look at the stats now, and uh, we have regular listeners right now in 62 different countries around the world. And um, and it's, it's just fascinating to me. And a large, large uh, growing audience in the South Pacific, in uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, and places like that, So, I, which I think is rather interesting. But... Um, hello to all y'all, and uh, let's dive into the program. By the way, fuzzy bunny slippers for those of you in Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea. I don't see that happening anytime soon because as we're cooling off here in the northern hemisphere, you guys are warming up. You're getting ready to go into summer. We're <laughs> we're on the verge of winter here, so yeah, just just keep that in mind. Um, alcoholic beverages don't have a problem with that uh, as long as you understand the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. That is actually what the biblical prohibition is, uh, is against. You don't want to be enslaved to a sin. And, of course, bending straws, padding, duct tape, all of that stuff is important, too, uh, to protect your mind from the uh, weird waves of uh, strange doctrine that emanate from this particular program. So with that, let's dive into the program. Here we go. Panic. This is leading into something. Sing along if you know it. Macho, macho man. go that's the village people <laughs> oh man i gotta tell you i was 
just so painful, just so painful. You know, as I was preparing for the program today, you know, I decided that I would be playing that music to segue into <laughs> discussing this video <laughs> that's uh, posted by uh, a pastor by the name of Doug Giles. And um, he's the pastor of Clash Church. Apparently, he's the uh, the next iteration of uh, Rex Kwando or something like that. And he's recently published a a YouTube video that's posted on his website, and um, and I think he's a townhall dot com or dot org uh, author. So uh, you know he's an op ed guy too. Uh, but he re- recently posted this video, and the name of it is "Got Game," and it's just just one of these one of these things that just seems to me like he's overcompensating on the testosterone thing and may have overplayed his testosterone card, if you know what I mean. But here, see if you can make heads or tails of this. Here's uh, Doug Giles from uh, ClashChurch.com and his video entitled Got Game. What's up, Christian? This is Doug Giles. I'm pastor of ClashChurch.com. Check it out. If you're going to find, follow, and finish God's purpose for your life in this jacked-up culture... (laughs) Well, you know what? You need some game. I'm talking about... Oh, man. <laughs> it's like locker room theology or something here. You know, you, you, you need some game if you're going to find, follow, and finish God's purpose for your life. Yeah, That's not the gospel. Um, Hey, Doug, um, just yeah, listen, I, I understand that your pecs are like, you know, way better than mine. It looks like you might have like, you know, a six pack app. I've got like a one pack. But, um, you know, despite that, uh, us both being dudes here, um, you know, the 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 macho machismo thing, um, finding a, a just a smidge on the putting me off type thing and it ha- and the reason why is cuz um y- y- the gospel's for like guys and girls and the gospel isn't about finding finishing or anything like that regarding your purpose the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great announcement that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, died on the cross for our sins. And he's calling all of us, men and women, boys and girls, to repent of our sins and be forgiven. And uh, and the idea here is, is that what's at stake? Well, being judged in accordance with the wrath of God against our sins. You see, that that's what the, uh, the the biblical gospel is about. It's not about finding or finishing your purpose, uh, regardless of how many uh, how many pounds you can bench press. You, you understand what I'm saying there, Doug? A holy pit bull tenacity, Batman. So what is game? Well, I'm glad you asked, Senorita. To be specific, game or gameness, classically defined, is number one, the love of battle. Number two. Uh, the ability to endure, and number three, the capability to absorb pain while staying focused, executing your plan, and having the confidence that you're going to prevail come hell or high water. Yeah, you know, um, boy, this sounds like, you know, a fine, fine inspirational speech that we would get from somebody, you know, like a, you know, a master drill sergeant or something like that, or a master chief in the uh, Marines. Um, but not sure what this exactly has to do with the biblical gospel, Christian doctrine, sound theology, things like that. In fact, it's kind of rather, um, just 
like brash and kind of insulting in like the wrong ways. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand this. The, the biblical gospel is really offensive, um, but it's offensive for different reasons. So if somebody's offended about what you're doing, uh, and it's not that they're that they're offended by the gospel, by sound doctrine, by a tenacious clinging to the truth, and a and a and a, well, let's say a willingness to rebuke those who teach uh, false doctrine. Um, if if that's not what people are upset about, but are instead are just um, rather put off by your machismo, uh, that's not equivalent to being persecuted for your Christian faith. Just you know, just something I wanted to point out there. You know, but uh, yeah, t- tell us more about your pit bull thing and your tenacity, dude, Batmanish, th- whatever. Question: How many Christians can you name that have game? I know, that's pretty sad, ain't it? Yeah, I bet you don't have it either. Um, you got you know, really games. How many Christians can you name that you've got? Ga- uh, what, what? Huh? What are you even talking about? Um, yeah, I got Jesus. That's better than game. Jesus had game. Good Lord, did he have game? You know who else had? Oh man, Jesus had game. Okay. Game. The original twelve disciples, well, maybe eleven. And uh, let's see, what did they do with this game, rowdy spirit? Yeah, yeah, the disciples, known for their rowdy spirit. Okay. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, thanks. Oh, yeah! They changed the planet for the glory of God. Yeah, there we go. Change the planet for the glory of God. You know, it doesn't matter if you dress this uh, theology up in Superman machismo stuff. By the way, uh, weird about Superman. He wore his underwear on the outside. Um, Yeah, Doug, see, here's the deal. I just don't find you more compelling than Chuck Norris. In fact, I'm pretty sure Chuck Norris could beat you. Uh, with one hand tied behind his back in a, in a good Bible battle, if you know what I mean. Um, so, um, yeah, listen, the biblical gospel is not about changing the world, finding your purpose or anything like that. And uh, so, you know, here's the deal. I mean, um, you know, Rick Warren does the Alan Alda version of this theology. Um, you know, um, uh, Doug Giles, this, you know, I'm not, it, this is kind of like a Chuck Norris wannabe version of this same theology. But it's the same theology. It's really not biblical and it's not really focusing on Christ and what he's done for us. This is just silly. <laughs> While going through difficult trials that the majority of 21st century Christians would run home to mommy and cry about. Yeah. In summation, my brother, what does the little Christian need as they face cultural monsters? Well, Dinky, we need... Yeah. <laughs> so, Dinky, we... <laughs> what does the Christian need uh, when facing cultural monsters? Oh, Okay. Yeah, this is just Rick Warren's theology with just, like, amped up on monster drinks and testosterone and steroids. Man. We need several things. Number one, we need a stranglehold on truth. Yeah, it's obvious you don't have that. Number two, we need cojones to proclaim it. And number three, we... You know, have you heard the, the statistic that those guys who use steroids that... Things get smaller, you know. Just something I've I've heard, you know, in the news. We gotta have a deep gameness to keep plowing when we hit rocky soil. Yes, we do. So remember to seek him for that rowdy spirit, and remember, sweetie, that without it, you're toast in our nation's screwed. Oh man, 
Just what we need. Meathead theology. Good night. Oh, man. You know, I'm going <laughs> to pause right there and collect my my thoughts because I just, I'm just incensed. Unbelievable. I mean, seriously, this this is like the purpose-driven theology, you know, uh, for the uh, for the guy who lifts weights, you know, but it's still purpose-driven theology, and it's not the truth. So he doesn't have a stranglehold on the truth either. So, yeah, okay, uh, <laughs> we're up on our first break. Um, if if you'd like to, you know, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you, you could do so. My email address. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Good night. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a stranglehold on the truth here at Fighting for the Faith. So beware, Pinky. I can't even do it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks. Uh, this Christmas, we're going to be releasing, uh, in the month of December, a, a very, very nice ebook. In fact, uh, I this is one that we've spent months working on in order to make it really readable. I'm not going to announce what it is yet, but let me just put it this way. Uh, as far as ebooks go, uh, this is one that you are definitely going to want to have in your library and, and re read and enjoy. So uh, that's just a little bit of a teaser, and that will be uh, our way of saying thank you to uh, all the folks out there who support us by being members of our crew. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then sending sending that to Post Office Box five zero eight, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, from the Tennessean, Tennessean um, at the Tennessean.com, the headline reads, Some fear megachurch bubble may soon burst. Now, this, this is an interesting story. Now, here's the deal. Uh, right off the bat, just, just the headline is rather interesting. Some fear megachurch bubble may soon burst. You know, I wonder if this is some of the reason why, um, you know, guys like Rick Warren and Perry Noble and others have adopted, well, um, Robert Morris as their go-to uh, money guy uh, in his theology of uh, your, your money is under the curse until you redeem it with the tithe. I, I wonder if that's the reason why they're going to a guy like that because, you know, they're, they're, they fear that their megachurch bubble might burst. Well, uh, let's take a look at what this uh, article says. I, I don't have a byline on it, so I'm not sure who actually wrote the article. Let's see if I can find it. Here we go. Bob, Bob uh, 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 Smeetana, Bob Smeetana of the Tennessean is who uh, the man who wrote this uh, article. This, by, by the way, the subhead reads, Aging pastors, big overheads may threaten longevity. So Bob writes, he says, The finest church that Rollis Smith ever knew was the Lord's Chapel. For more than 15 years, Smith was an elder of the 
2,500-member Nashville congregation. Crowds packed the church on Granny White Pike, drawn by its contemporary music and charismatic practices, such as speaking in tongues. The Reverend Billy Roy Moore's sermons made the Bible come alive, and then it fell apart. Moore moved away after his son died in a car crash. People dropped out rather than shift to a new 50,000-square-foot church seven miles away. When the Lord's Chapel finally closed down in 2003, there were only 40 people left. Quote, It was the power of God that brought people to the church, and I don't know how we got away with that, Smith said. That's a question I've asked myself a thousand times. The past three decades have been boom times for big churches like the Lord's Chapel. In the 1970s, only a handful of churches drew more than 2,000 people on Sundays. Now they number in the thousands, but the collapse of the Crystal Cathedral near Los Angeles, which is being sold to pay off more than $50 million in debt, has prompted fears that the megachurch bubble may be about to burst. Most megachurches, which earn that label around the 2,000 attendance level, are led by baby boomer pastors who soon will hit retirement age and without suitable replacements in the pipeline. And some fear the big box worship centers with lots of individual programs no longer appeal to the younger generations. Sky Jathani, a senior editor of Leadership, a prominent evangelical magazine for pastors, compared megachurches to the real estate market a few years ago. Quote, if you asked people back in 2007 if the housing market was doing well, people would have said yes, he said. Jathani said megachurches have become so big that their economics are unsustainable. <laughs> uh-huh. This is something I've been hinting at for a while. They often have multi-million dollar mortgages and hundreds of staff members that work while a church is growing. But churches often shrink when a longtime minister leaves, Jathani said. And if you're a church of 400 people and you lose 200 people, you can still keep going, he said. But if you're a church of 10,000 and you go down to 5,000, you may not be able to survive. Now, researchers who study megachurches are skeptical that a bubble exists. Scott Thuma, a sociologist of religion at Hartford Seminary and co-author of Beyond Megachurch Myths, What We Can Learn from America's Largest Churches, said all churches are vulnerable when they switch pastors or when their demographics change. Good megachurches will adapt, he said. Bad ones will struggle. He said people have predicted the end of megachurches for years, but like the big box retailers, they often resemble Thuma believes megachurches are here to stay. It took decades for that big box reality to become part and parcel of American suburban life, he said. It's not going to disappear overnight. Megachurches are often run by entrepreneurs who aren't tied to traditional ways of doing church, Thuma said. Now that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, not only are they not tied to traditional ways of doing church, they're not even tied to like sound biblical theology either. They just tell people what they want to hear and boom, they've got a mega church. Anyway, uh, that gives them an advantage over other congregations. They are willing to adapt to changes in American society, which is why they got big in the first place, he said. 
Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, which draws about 20,000 on weekends, says he's not worried about megachurches disappearing. The truth is that the next generation of churches is going to be even larger than my generation's churches. He said, new technology like high-quality, inexpensive video conferencing allows churches to meet in many locations at the same time. So a church can attract tens of thousands of people without building a huge facility. That means a church won't be tied to a massive building, he said. The next generation never fills the temples of the past, Warren said. Warren already appointed younger leaders to help run his church, but he said that the transitions between senior pastors can make or break a church's future. One of the strengths of large churches is that pastors stay a long time, he said, but sometimes the pastors stay too long. Two things are clear about megachurches. New ones pop up on a regular basis, and the list of the biggest churches is always changing. Outreach Magazine has published a yearly list of the biggest churches in America since 2004. Only eight of the top 25 in 2004 are still in the top 25 this year. Twenty years ago, six Nashville-area churches, the Fellowship at Two Rivers, First Baptist Church in Hendersonville, Park Avenue Baptist, Judson Baptist, Woodmont Baptist, and Tuscaloosa Hills Baptist were among the 10 in the Tennessee and uh, Tennessee Baptist Convention all with more than 2000 members. Today only First Baptist in Hendersonville remains in the top 10. How but but Long Hollow Baptist Church, Brentwood Baptist Life Point Church in Smyrna and New Vision Baptist in Murfreesboro have joined the list all with 3000 members or more. There's also there also has been a big box style trend of consolidation when it comes to churches. While most churches are small, fewer than 100 attendees, most people go to big churches. For example, only 4.37% of Southern Baptist churches draw more than 500 people on Sundays. But about 35% of Southern Baptists go to those churches, including 12.6% who go to churches that draw more than 2,000, said Tom Rayner, president of Nashville-based Lifeway Christian Resources. Rayner who studied church growth patterns for more than 15 years, said megachurches have a life cycle like that of other churches. They grow at first, then stall out, then decline, and then sometimes recover. Decline sometimes happens because of a change in pastor or demographics, he said. But often church leaders become set in their ways and aren't willing to adapt and change their programs. A church's growth stalls, and then leaders deny they have problems, and then they long for the good old days, Rainer said. The past becomes the goal instead of the future. Bigger churches mean bigger messes when a church fails, and the struggles of megachurches often make headlines. That was the case in Nashville for Two Rivers Baptist Church and Bellevue Community Church, two local megachurches that struggled after public feuds with their former pastors. Both churches moved on and are now reinventing themselves under new leaders with new names, the Fellowship at Two Rivers and Hope Park Church, uh, and smaller congregations, local pastors are looking to those and other churches nationwide to see what they can avoid. The Reverend Rick White, pastor of the People's Church in Franklin, grew that congregation, formerly known as First Baptist Franklin, into a megachurch over the past 20 years. Now, in his 50s, White has begun making plans for his eventual retirement, looking for younger leaders to groom. You don't want to spend your life building something and then see it blow up, he said. Now, I'm going to stop the story right there, Okay. If you want to read more about it, you can find uh, you can find the rest of the article at thetennessean.com. But I want to point something out here. What what's 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 really going on here? Now, one of the things you hear um, if you attend any of these seeker driven conferences or you read any of the seeker driven leadership books 
or blogs or you know things of that nature is this constant referral to the the only constant in a seeker driven church is change and this belief that you've got to got to got to constantly keep changing in order for uh, in order to keep growing, because if you don't keep changing, then you you run the risk of stalling out. And if you stall out, well, then that's not a good thing at all. And what will end up happening is that rather than growing, your church will shrink. And so the idea is that the only constant is change. And see, that's the thing, isn't it? These churches, in order for them to survive in the long run, they have to constantly keep adapting and adapting and adapting and adapting and adapting because the culture constantly is changing itself. But see, the problem is that the church hasn't grown this way. The church has never grown by constantly adapting, but by faithfully proclaiming God's word. And the other thing that seems to be common in this is that it always looking to the leader. It seems to be a lot of these mega churches are well they're following a cult of leadership if you would. Uh they they've, they've become cults of leadership. Oh, I follow Rick Warren, I follow Bill Hybels, I follow Stephen Furtick, I follow Perry Noble. And who gets lost? Jesus Christ. That's the thing that gets lost. And that's one of the reasons why we do our sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith, and we do them long-form style. To kind of show you that here's the problem. Um, Christianity is a cult of personality. But if that personality isn't Jesus Christ and is your pastor, then you you ain't getting Christianity. You're getting, you know, whatever your pastor's name is and that the religion of him. And that's a that's a big problem. Now, um, there's a gentleman that I follow on on Twitter, and I read his blog, uh, who hangs out. Uh, he's he's a prominent musician in the seeker driven movement, and his name is Carlos Whitaker. And Carlos Whitaker uh, has a has a blog that he publishes called the Ragamuffin Soul. And what I find interesting is is that uh, just today he posted a um, a, a blog post that kind of encapsulates this idea of these megachurches that are constantly having to change and strive for the next cultural thing and keep moving and keep moving and keep moving. and ch- It's like chasing the wind. And, uh, and Carlos Whitaker seems to understand that. Uh, a blog post he just put up today is entitled Your Kingdom Come, The Impending Loss of the Current Megachurch and How to Save Her, Kinda. Here's what Carlos Whitaker writes. He says, The megachurches of the 50s are not the megachurches of the 80s. The megachurches of the 80s are not the megachurches of 2012. Can you see where the, where uh, what is going on here? The next statement is the megachurches of 2012 are not going to be the megachurches of 2032. And is that a bad thing? I don't think so. That's what he says. I say, yeah, it's a really bad thing. I actually think it's kind of a good thing, kind of, can't decide. But I do know one thing. If your church is banging uh, right now, it is in a season. And I know that you think it'll be banging for eternity and that yours is the one that will transition transition seamlessly from generation to generation to generation. But more than likely, like my dad's generation and his before, you will live with the thought that, that how you got to where you are is going to is going to be how you last. It's not. It's not. It's not. So while you spend 
why you spend thought and energy and money on building campuses all over the world and crush as hard as the main joint. Why don't you take half that thought and energy and money on building into what is next, but not not next week, not next year, but next decade. And then when the decade comes and the rowdy young guns, the current you, get tired of your charades, they won't leave. They will be sent into your buildings and into your spaces. Yeah, um, see, here's the deal. Um, it's not chasing after the culture that builds the church. And here's the other thing, okay? Um, when I do evangelism, I'm not trying to build a particular congregation. I'm preaching the gospel so that God will grow his church the church is so much bigger than the local mega church or your local congregation or your local house church. The church is the body of Christ around the world. And when you know that's the church I'm trying to grow. That's the one I'm laboring to, you know, to enhance and to add people to through my efforts. But it's not me doing it. It's it's really God, the Holy Spirit, who works through the preaching of the gospel. How does the Apostle Paul put it? He says, one plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. One plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. So I rejoice when the church grows. And I bemoan uh, the growth of, of a narcissistic, personality-driven megachurch where people aren't hearing about the only personality that matters, Jesus Christ, but instead are hearing about the pastor. That doesn't grow the church. It might grow a big building that has the name church attached to it, but it doesn't grow the church. Now, talking about the church's mission... Um, I've been threatening to get to this story for a few days now. But uh, Michael Horton, on November 15th on the White Horse Inn blog, published a blog post entitled, What is the Church's Mission? And it's worth passing along, especially in light of what we heard from uh, you know, Ed Stetzer's blog a few days ago. But uh, Michael Horton writes, he says, In recent days, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert have taken a fair number of hits for their arguments in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? It was just published by Crossway in this year. It says, uh, the main worry is that they define the mission too narrowly, focusing on the Great Commission. At least on the more vehement side of the opposition, the concern is that there is no place for the church to have an impact on culture, particularly in the social and economic terms. Now, having received some fair, uh, similar objections to my argument in the book, The Gospel Commission, I think that many criticisms rest on basic confusion of categories. There are several examples that could be mentioned, but I'll stick with this one. The confusion of the church as a divine institution or a place with the church as Christian people. So uh, we are made Christians from the beginning to the end of our discipleship through the ministry that Christ ordained, preaching and teaching, baptism, the supper, and the privileges and responsibility of church membership. Growing up into Christ together, we are living stones in a global sanctuary. Our heavenly citizenship shapes the way we live out our earthly citizenship. 
Like salt that loses its savor, we are always on the verge of being reabsorbed into the world's bloodstream without contributing any distinctive flavor or preservative characteristics. So we come to church each week to be resalinated, bathed again in the minerals of God's word, swept by the Spirit into the unfolding story of Christ's kingdom. We exchange gifts among the saints and then get shaken out into the world for our various callings throughout the week. The church's job is not to raise children, fix neighborhoods, manage relationships, or heal society. Rather, the church is commissioned to make disciples of Christ by preaching, administering the sacraments, and teaching them to observe everything that he, Jesus, commanded. All of the other things, being good neighbors, can be done by the, by the members, and not only with other Christians, but with their non-Christian neighbors who also care about the needs of their community. Historically, evangelicals have an almost Gnostic or hyper-spiritualized view of the church. It is simply the sum total of born-again individuals. There is often little conception of the church as a divine institution with ordained offices and a holy ministry of preaching and sacrament. Accordingly, the church is seen not chiefly as a community of sinners receiving God's judgment and grace, but as a group of activists fulfilling Jesus' redeeming work and building his kingdom, getting saved and joining a church, or believing and belonging are considered two separate issues. Some zealous world changers who have left their pastoral ministry to become humanitarian activists even celebrate their freedom from the church to become truly missional. No longer members of a church, they are followers of Jesus. This older pietistic bifurcation between personal salvation and the church has widened with each generation to the point now where the Great Commission itself can be described implicitly as narrow and confining. The confusion of the church as a divine institution with the church as the people of God leads to statements today like, we can't go to church because we are the church. But this is a false choice, as bad as the nominal Sunday Christianity that treats formal membership in the church as a fire insurance. The truth is, if we don't go to church, we can't be the church. We need to be made Christians or we cannot be Christians. Before we can be active doers of the word, we have to be grateful receivers of it. Something must be done for us and to us before we have something to do and to give to others. Each Lord's Day, the risen Lord loads us down with his gifts, and then we distribute them to our brothers and to our sisters, as well as outsiders according to the proportion that we have been given. The callings of Christians are myriad. We're called as children, parents, co-workers, employers, and employees, citizens, volunteers, friends, and neighbors. Some of us are called to be missionaries or to live and work in other vocations where we are loving and serving people in other countries. However, we don't have to visit a church bulletin board or parachurch website to find some faraway neighbors who need us. They're right under our nose. They are our spiritual mothers and fathers in nursing homes, brothers and sisters suffering from illness. It could be someone simply going through the stress of everyday life, child care, and a layoff at work, and is perhaps one relative, friend, or fellow believer away from not being able to manage it all. 
We want to do something important, extraordinary with our lives, but God calls most of us most of the time to a lot of relatively important but ordinary tasks that our real neighbors actually need. The church prepares us to be better citizens of earth because its sacred ministry makes us first and foremost citizens of heaven. If we can distinguish between the church's organization, place, and the church's organism, people, rather than setting them in opposition, then we can avoid the dangers both of ecclesial missional creep and of ignoring our worldly callings. Schools cannot usurp the role of families, but children learn many important things outside of the home. The responsibility and authority for national defense are not entrusted to the family, but the military has no say in our home life. Fire departments have a narrowly defined mandate. No one expects them to offer plans for managing Italy's debt crisis. We do not raise a hue and cry when they do not provide long-term health care. Nevertheless, firefighters vote, some even participating in neighborhood, state, or national political parties and coalitions, serve on the school board and volunteer, and volunteer for all sorts of community services as well as church activities and offices. Many callings intersect in the life of every believer. The mandate given to Christians is far wider than that given to the church as an institution. The New Testament provides directives for believers in their marriages and their parenting, a few commands concerning relationships with employers and employees as well as rulers. However, it also assumes that families still do the lion's share of raising the children. We still owe taxes to our government to provide for our common society, and non-Christians as well as believers owe each other justice backed up by the courts and law enforcement. Much of what I'm arguing for here is found in Abraham Kuyper's idea of spheres of society, where Christians participate in many different callings, and none of these callings or spheres can claim sovereignty over all of the others. Even if Christians formed the majority in a society, the church would never have authority to wield the temporal sword, whether in the milder form of policy legislation or by actually taking up arms for its causes. Christians work alongside non-Christians in all of these spheres of common grace, bringing the depth and the breadth of their biblically informed wisdom to bear on these varied decisions and actions. Christians are not free to ignore the plight of their neighbors. As our catechisms point out, we violate the sixth commandment, not only when we actually take someone's life, a sin of commission, but when we fail to do what we could do to preserve their life, a sin of omission. Shaped by the biblical story, some disciples will be called to devote time, talents, and treasure to neighbors who are being kidnapped in Thailand and sold in sex trafficking in San Diego. Others will be called to care for a child with cerebral palsy. Many other less auspicious crosses will be borne by believers that are nevertheless part of a vast safety net that the triune God weaves in his common grace for the care of his creatures. But if the church is distracted from fulfilling its calling, then even these temporal benefits of Christ's kingdom will diminish. The salt will lose its savor. The church is both a place where Christians are made over a whole lifetime and a people who are then salt and light in the world. One concrete example of this principle is the office of deacon. 
I spent a whole chapter on this in the Gospel Commission. I did so for two reasons. First, in spite of all the talk of mercy ministries, this office is often underappreciated today. Second, the call to love and serve our neighbors, the great commandment, is often simply confused with a call to make disciples, the Great Commission. Of course, we do both out of love, but with different mandates, methods, and goals. Although I've read Paul's epistles closely for a long time, only over the last few years has it really hit me how obsessed the Apostle Paul was with an offering for the Jerusalem saints. We know that the diaconate was established when the Greeks and the Jews were squabbling over the daily provisions. In Acts chapter 6, it reads, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick brothers out from among you, seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Stephen and several others were chosen. They These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The result and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Already we learn two important things about this ministry of mercy. First, it is important. The ministry of the word was clearly paramount, but instead of neglecting, much less setting aside the bodily welfare of the saints, the apostles established a separate office for it. Both jobs needed to be done well. Second, it is an office in the church. Exercising the direct authority of Christ himself, the apostles instituted an office that highlighted Christ's redemptive love for the whole person. The church is not called merely to save souls, but to care for people in the totality of their earthly needs. Paul also spelled out to Timothy the qualifications of deacons as well as elders. Pastors, elders are overseers while deacons are servants. Pastors preach, teach, and administer the sacraments. Elders rule and deacons serve, thus mediating Christ's threefold office of prophet, king, and priest. And now Paul mentions this diaconal ministry in the latter part of several letters. We know that Paul was obsessed with the gospel and with getting it to the Gentiles, which is why he was so ambitious to make it all the way to Rome before he died. Yet, he was also burdened with a major relief project. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians. A, a disciplinary letter written to an immature church that in many ways mirrored the individualism, social stratification, and worldliness of its urbane culture. 1 Corinthians 16 explains, quote, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up that he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, at first, it may seem like a passing remark in the signing off section of Paul's epistles, but it's actually more than that. First, the collection was occasioned by a desperate need. 
political agitation by various groups of Jewish zealots had led to another Roman crackdown, and this included what amounted to a blockade of basic necessities to Jerusalem. Many died of starvation. It was during this time, the mid-40s, that James wrote his epistle addressing the social conflict in in the Jerusalem church between the rich and the poor and calling believers to be doers, not merely hearers of the word. Second, the collection was especially formal. It wasn't just another collection taken on the first day of the week, as Christians have been taking collections in the public service ever since. Paul assumes some general familiarity with this project. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, which he has only mentioned here for the first time in this letter. Third, the collection was Catholic. In other words, it was universal. It was not merely the initiative of one local congregation, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. It is an apostolic injunction to be received and obeyed by all the churches. Fourth, Although all churches are to participate, each collection was local to be taken up each Lord's Day in every church. No last-minute fun drive when Paul comes. The believers in Corinth are called to make this collection part of their weekly worship service. Thus, it is a top-down enterprise, but a movement of charity from all local assemblies to another local assembly. This expresses genuine Catholicity. Although the injunction is apostolic, the administration is to be determined by each church's officers, most likely the deacons. Quote, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. End quote. Paul respects the integrity of this local church and its officers. As an apostle, he will send the officers, most likely deacons, with the gift to Jerusalem, but he will send those whom you accredit by letter. He even adds, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul really wanted to be there for the giving of the grand collection, but he cedes that personal right to the officers of that church. Paul refers to this collection also in Romans chapter 15, where he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, to the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Yet, Paul connects his priestly ministry of the gospel and offering up of the Gentiles as a sacrifice of praise to his campaign for relief of the Jerusalem saints. He continues, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Paul concludes by asking for prayer, quote, that I may be delivered 
from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. See verses 31 and 33. Why is this collection so central to Paul's apostolic mission? Well, in Romans, it is a concrete expression of the goal of Paul's entire ministry. Salvation is from the Jews. The Great Commission goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. So it is only proper that the spiritual gift that goes out to the Gentiles comes back to the Jewish saints in material blessing. Central to Paul's gospel is that in Christ the wall of partition between the Jew and Gentile has been removed, and now the collection expresses that truth. The drama leads to doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. Put your money where your mouth is, as they say. Paul seems to imply in Romans 15, uh, 14 and 15 that the Roman Christians, though filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, needed a strong admonition to care for the saints. And this was probably as much of a test of discipleship for the Jewish believer as it was for the Gentiles, even more than today. Accepting charity in the ancient world was an embarrassment, but Jews had been especially careful to avoid the charity of their Roman occupiers. There would have been members of the Jerusalem church who were demanding that Gentile converts adopt Jewish circumcision and dietary laws. Then in walks Paul, the former persecutor of that very Jerusalem church, now an apostle to the Gentiles, flanked by representatives, probably deacons, from far-flung Gentile churches carrying a treasure to lay at the feet of suffering brothers and sisters. Nothing drives home the gospel more and challenges spiritual arrogance than being destitute, even physically. And depending on the kindness of foreigners, and in this very act the Jewish believers were bound more deeply to their Gentile co-heirs than they were to their own Jewish neighbors. They were no longer strangers and aliens. So how did the Corinthians do when Paul finally came around for this collection? Well, we find out in his second letter to the church, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through chapter 9, verse 15, Paul provokes the Corinthians to jealousy by recounting the generosity of the Macedonian churches in spite of their poverty. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They even begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Paul, Paul clearly saw this collection as connected to the gospel itself. It is not the gospel, but the reasonable response to it. They must stop thinking of this collection as a tax, as an exaction, but as a willing gift. The Corinthians had excelled in knowledge. Now it's time for them to excel in generosity. For, quote, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in you his poverty might become rich. He reminds them that they started this project of collecting funds in Corinth a year ago, and he urges them now to finally complete it. Just as we build up each other through the diversity of our spiritual gifts, so also through the diversity of our material means. 
The poor need the rich, and the rich also need the abundance of gifts that the poor members bring to the body. At a time when more Christians are martyred in an average year than all the martyrdoms under the Roman Empire, is diaconal ministry as crucial a concern in our churches as it should be? At least in Reformed and Presbyterian polity, every member is a part of the local church, and every local church is a microcosm of the broader Catholic universal church. We're connected, not hierarchically, but covenantally, in a network of shared representative ministerial authority. Pastors and elders represent this Catholicity in the local church and in broader assemblies. Why shouldn't deacons as well? As Paul's example clearly shows, deacons are not elders in waiting. It's a different but equal office with its own rationale and gifting. Local churches have plenty of opportunities to look after the daily welfare of the saints under their care. How much more could be done expressing the Catholicity of Christ's body if the diaconates of various denominations were linked together in a network of relief to the body of Christ throughout the world? When one part suffers, the whole body should feel the pain. Even if we could get agreement from everyone on the importance of diaconal ministry for the saints, the larger question concerns the scope of mercy ministry. So let me cut to the chase and then defend briefly my conclusion. In my reading, Scripture gives ample authorization for the church and its official mandate to care for the temporal welfare of the saints. However, it does not sanction as part of the church's official mission the extension of this welfare to the world at large. Again, recall my main point. The church is not called to do everything that God calls Christians to do in the world. This is not a question of whether Christians and non-Christians are commanded by God to seek justice for their neighbors. The great commandment, the love of God and neighbor, remains in force. Written on the conscience in creation, it is the standard by which God will judge the world on the last day. However, civil government was introduced to legislate and enforce this law of neighborly justice. The church is the creation of the word. Specifically, it's the creation of the gospel. It gives rise to a community of the age to come within the crumbling order of this present evil age. We are obligated to both mandates as citizens of both kingdoms. We are familiar with the ways in which liberal Protestantism has turned the radical message of the New Covenant into a blandly sentimental ethic of of universal brotherhood. Yet, we are in danger of seeing that happen in evangelical circles today as well. Again, the problem is not that Christians are too concerned about justice and the good of their neighbors. The problem comes when we reinterpret the story of Jesus and his body as an allegory for the march of human progress. The astonishing thing about the apostolic community was not that it tried aggressively to transform the world, but that for all its faults and failures, it was a recipient of God's gracious invasion. The early Christians attempted no transformation of Jewish or Roman society, but They refused to allow the presuppositions, methods, standards, and goals of society to have any ultimate claim on their identity as Christ's body. This strange new society emerged out of their weekly reorientation around Christ through the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the supper, and the prayers. 
Although they gave freely, not out of forced redistribution, believers shared all things in common and gave as anyone had need. So what do we say then about the passages that are offered to support a wider mission of mercy? Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's Galatians 6.10. There is nothing in the context to suggest that it is deacons who are being addressed. This is a general call for believers to extend help to everyone, and especially to fellow church members. Hebrews 13.16 exhorts, quote, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 2 and verse 16. Entertaining angels unaware is probably a reference to Abraham's unwitting hospitality to strangers who were actually angels sent to save him and his family from the destruction of Sodom. In any case, the reference to strangers here, like the prisoners mentioned in verse 3, is most likely to believers who were showing up on doorsteps of fellow saints seeking a hiding place from the authorities. The context of Hebrews is important for all of these relevant passages. Jesus had already prepared his disciples for this scenario. For example, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus speaks of what will happen in between his ascension and return in glory. There will be persecution. Believers in Christ will be cast out of the synagogues. Their own relatives will hand them over to the authorities. And there will be wars and rumors of wars until the gospel is preached to every nation. And then Jesus speaks of the last judgment when he separates the sheep from the goat. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What is especially striking is that the righteous answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers or and sisters, you did it to me, my brethren. Meanwhile, the reverse happens in the case of the ghosts. Jesus indicts them for turning their back on the saints and therefore on him. While they protest the charge and defend their righteousness, do you see the main point, though? Jesus is saying that any solidarity expressed with these persecuted brothers and sisters, even to the point of putting one's own life in jeopardy, is solidarity with Jesus himself. Ecclesiology, not social justice, is what this passage is all about. The bond between the head and his body is so inextricable that when the ascended Jesus appeared to Saul on the Damascus road, he asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul would never forget and only grow in his understanding of the significance of this bond of union between Christ and his church. Sometimes, in the laudable zeal for reaching out to those outside of the church, we ignore or take for granted the priority of Christ's own body. Neither does the Sermon on the Mount pertain to the world at large any more than do the Beatitudes that introduce it. 
Again, the context is persecution and the radically new stance of Christ's kingdom vis-a-vis the ungodly forces of this age. Instead of driving out the Canaanites in the holy war, we pray for our persecutors. When they demand our suit, we give them our shirt too. Our dual citizenship issues in a dual mandate. The great commandment to love our neighbors by our common service is our worldly calling. And the great commission to love our neighbors by our holy service in witness to the gospel and in participating in the holy commonwealth of the saints. As the neighbor-loving Christians, we may give generously to support agencies for the general relief of those in need, volunteer at soup kitchens, or care for an unbelieving parent in his or her old age. However, as co-heirs with Christ, we give joyfully to the support of our brothers and our sisters, because with them we share equally all that God has given us in his Son. These two mandates intersect in the life of every believer, as Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12. through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You know, got to hand it to Michael Horton here. He's, I, for lack of a better way of putting it, he nailed the landing. That's exactly right. The mission of the church is not to set up soup kitchens for the general relief of the world, nor is it like uh, Mr. Giles said, you know, about you know finding your purpose and going and making a difference in the world. It's about proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins, and we gather together as the body of Christ to feast on God's word and to feast on the sacraments. And that's how God salinates us so that when we go out into the world, we are salt and light and love and serve our neighbor in our vocations. Yeah, good stuff here, good stuff. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to... uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. Stephen Furtick's sermon review when we come back. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. you have your Bible, flip on over to Luke chapter 24. Start somewhere around verse 13, somewhere in this sermon. But let's uh, do what we normally do here. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina. Stephen Furtick, Fuhrer, uh, Stephen Furtick, that's the leader of Furtick, uh, presiding. The name of the sermon that we will be reviewing today is entitled Blessed and Broken, Blessed and Broken. This is... The perfect specimen of a of Stephen Furtick sermon, and demonstrates clearly what is wrong with his theology and his approach to the Bible. Put in a nutshell, the problem is he's in the way of Jesus. He's going to actually be preaching on a biblical text where Jesus explains all of the passages of the Scripture in the Old Testament that are about him. And Stephen Furtick is then going to turn around and make it about himself. I wish I was joking, but that's the problem in a nutshell. Christianity is not about you. The Bible is not about you. It's about what Jesus has done for you. When you make it about you, you actually kick Jesus out of the scriptures. You don't even need Jesus. Yeah, the Latin phrase that I used at the beginning of the program was incurvatus and say. The problem with Stephen Furtick, he is bent in on himself. Can't quite see Jesus because he keeps looking at himself. This is like as if the ancient story of narcissist is being told by, you know, as the life of a Christian pastor. Doesn't make any sense. So let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, uh, ado, here is Stephen Furtick and his sermon entitled Blessed and Broken, Blessed and Broken. Here we go. ...to you today on the subject of how God works in our lives. So the subject is how God works in our lives. Notice it begins with sappy music. Yeah. In different stages of our lives and word of encouragement and, and hope. And so I want you to join hands with the person on your right and on your left at every location. You can stretch out in the aisles if you need to. And let's just, uh, let's take a moment and pray and open our hearts to God 
and ask that he would speak to us today. God's word is supernatural. And I, I always, always remind myself of that before every single time that I come up here and open the Bible and, and preach to you is that this isn't like a motivational speech or some kind of address that a politician would give. It's something totally different than that. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing, but God commands his people to come together and he says that he wants a preacher to take the Bible and open it and to preach the truth of the Word of God. And he just makes all kinds of crazy promises that when we do that, I don't understand all of this, but when we do that, that just through one word that God speaks to your life, everything can change. And the reason I want to tell you that is because you may have come here today just kind of to do church. Uh, maybe you're a teenager who was made to be here today uh, or or maybe i don't know you got up and through an act of magic there was an hour added to your life and you might as well go to church or something like that but just know that um today god has a word for you for you so lord speak to each one of us now in the way we need to hear Give us open hearts to hear you and give us the courage that we'll need to obey you because you're going to call us to believe some things and act on some things that may be hard, may be difficult, but we pray that we would just be completely wide open to your work in our lives today. And I want you to use me now, God, because maybe this is the only 40 minutes of hope that somebody will get all week long just someone encouraging them. I take that very seriously, God, and I pray that you will use me to that end today and that we can all say at the end of this time together that surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. And everybody who is ready to hear a word from God for your life today, I want you to clap your hands at every single location. Let's just invite God to speak to us today. Amen. Thank you, worship team. You may be seated. And uh, I want to give you a little bit of background on the inspiration, how this sermon came to be. Um, I want to say happy birthday to Gary Sessions. He's a good man. I just like to give a birthday shout out to Gary Sessions. Um, thank you, Eric. I was in London last weekend. I had the opportunity to go and preach in London. Okay, just want to point something out. He's explaining how the sermon came to be. Now, it's a weird thing for a pastor to be saying because uh, the way a sermon should come to be uh, for any pastor is he should be studying God's Word and the biblical text and really digging into it and understanding what it is that God has communicated there, and he should then bring that text forward into the congregation and preach it. And, ex and make sure that he uses every tool possible to convey to us what it is that God the Holy Spirit intended to communicate in the passage that he's preaching from. With this in mind, each and every passage of Scripture only has one intended meaning. 
You and it's right there in the text. And God used nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, pronouns, and you know direct clauses and indirect clauses and direct objects and indirect objects and and subordinate things like that. You know, and and to communicate things and reveal things about Himself. The job of the pastor is to teach us what it is that God the Holy Spirit intended to communicate in his word. It's a very important task, and he's not to mix that message with his own stuff. Our minds are to be transformed by God's word. Our minds have no freedom in the Christian church to transform God's word into saying something that God the Holy Spirit never intended to say. In fact, when you do that, you are guilty of breaking the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because at that point, you are lying about God. You are putting words in God's mouth that God the Holy Spirit did not speak. You are making God the Holy Spirit say things that he never said. So handling God's word is a very fearsome and awesome responsibility. All the more reason why it is revealed in scriptures that teachers in the church will be judged more harshly than others. Because they've been tasked with the responsibility of opening and preaching and correctly teaching God's word. We continue. And uh, how many of you have ever been to London before? Can I see your hands, please? Every location, you've been to London before? World travelers. I had never been to Europe before. It's my first time ever going over there. Took Holly with me, and before we left, she said, now, we're not just going over there for you to preach. I want to see some stuff while we're over there. And, <laughs> and so she said, be ready. We're going to walk, and we're going to get on the red bus and take tours and and we're going to see some, some old buildings. And, you know, I'm, I'm just not much fun as a tourist. When I go to a place, I kind of like to preach and do my thing and, and come back home. And uh, maybe shop a little, eat, sleep, go home. And so I can't say I was looking forward to it. But, man, there was some cool stuff to see in London. Just stuff we didn't have in Monk's Corner uh, <laughs> where I grew up. And uh, stuff we don't have anywhere in the United States, for that matter. It was just really fun. Maybe my favorite city I've ever been to. Um, I was thinking what was my favorite um, thing that I saw while I was over there. Obviously, the highlight of the trip was getting to preach to over 8,000 people at uh, Hillsong Church London and just encourage them. And I always like to tell you where I have been to preach or where I'm going to preach because you're there with me, at least those of you who do something. Uh, now, keep in mind, Hillsong and all of the Hillsongs are word, faith, heresy churches. That tells you something. Thing to support this church are. Some of you, you know, you're not doing anything anywhere. But um, <laughs> it's taking up a seat somebody else could sit in. But, um, but there are a lot of you who sacrifice for this church. And I always like you to know, hey, we were in London together last weekend through, through your giving, through your serving, through your prayers. Um, so that was the highlight, but my favorite places that we saw, if I could just tell you a little bit of this and bring you into how this message came to me. Um, second favorite place was, was Abbey Road, where the Beatles recorded. That was amazing. Uh, 
and my daughter's name is Abby and all of that. So we took a lot of pictures and bought some coffee mugs and things like that. And, and, and then my favorite place we saw, and kind of surprised me because I didn't really think I'd get into this. My favorite place was St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, I, I told him to put up a picture real quick of me standing outside of St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, I was just getting some ideas for our next campus of how it should look. And, <laughs> and um, there's me standing outside of the cathedral. It dominates the skyline of London. It's just a beautiful place, an Anglican church. Uh, here's a picture that I took of um, the inside of the cathedral. You're not supposed to take pictures, but maybe I did. Um, <laughs> And I took, I took that picture just before the woman came up and told me to stop taking pictures. Um, but I, I took that picture from that specific place because that's behind the high altar. And I was just moved by the architecture of the building, how that they had the people and then the preacher. And then this was taken from, from even further back where, where they've established the high altar. And it's just to remind the people that God is always beyond all of us. And that just really ministered to me, you know, as a preacher, I thought, I always want to preach in a way where people are, are drawing their attention toward God ultimately. And uh, so I took that picture. And then I snuck in one more picture, and I think God will forgive me because it was a special thing. Um, a couple of our staff members who went with me got to take communion at St. Paul's Cathedral. We just happened to show up at a time where they were having a worship service in the middle of the day. And so we sat down and went through the worship service and I sent them to take communion. And I snuck over to the side and I got this picture. Here it is. There's um, Chunks and Amy Corbett and Larry and Kelly Hubatka. Uh, by the way, happy birthday, Kelly Hubatka also at our uptown campus. And uh, they, took, they took communion and I took a picture. And I, I'm not kidding you. While they were taking communion, it was like the Lord outlined what I needed to bring back for my message this week, sitting there in that beautiful cathedral, just thinking about how big God is and, and some of the important traditions that are a part of the church. And, uh, and I felt like God wanted me to minister to you today through a passage of Scripture in, in Luke chapter 24. And I want to minister on the subject of the breaking of bread. When I finish my message in just a few moments, I'm going to preach a little bit shorter today. And um, when I finish my message, we're going to give you the opportunity to take communion, holy communion, and we'll have a time of worship set aside for that. But before we do that, I want to share some insights with you about how God works in our lives and just what it means to take communion and I got to give credit where credit is due. About three and a half years ago, I heard a sermon by Bishop T.D. Jakes where he preached on Luke 24. Okay, going to pause here. T.D. Jakes, the infamous Sabalian modalist, uh, the, the guy who has a long history and track record of being a modalist. The same guy who sparked all of the controversy in the elephant room, who apparently maybe not be a, may not be a modalist anymore, but uh, you have to wait for a paid event to find out whether or not he truly believes the Trinity or not. Okay, T.D. Jakes, um, yeah, um, I wouldn't trust him to teach uh, uh, preschoolers in a Sunday school class. Why? This guy has a long track record of teaching false doctrine and mishandling God's word. 
And, well, T.D. Jakes apparently is one of the major sources of feeding his mind that's, uh, that Stephen Furtick goes to. So do you think Stephen Furtick um, thinks that T.D. Jakes is a heretic? Hmm, doesn't sound like it. And it moved. By the way, Scripture says you can't gather good fruit from a bad tree. Something to keep in mind. Moved me very deeply the things he said from that passage and a lot of the insight that I'm sharing with you today I got from that sermon. But I bet I've listened to that sermon. What would you say, Holly? Fifty, a hundred times since I heard it initially. And it's one of the few sermons that's ever just reduced me to tears listening to it, thinking about how God works in each of our lives and what Jesus did for us. And so I want to read it to you. It's a rather lengthy passage in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. And when I'm done reading it, I'll point out something that, that I think will give you some insight about what God is trying to do in your life in this season. Okay, we got a problem here. We got a big problem. Um, Luke 23 isn't about what God is trying to do in your life in this season. Luke 23 is one of the Easter passages that deals with the resurrected Jesus. Um, yeah, we got a big problem here. The, again, this is, the problem is a narcissistic reading of the text. All right, let's see what he does with it. Jesus has risen from the dead, but the disciples don't know it yet. They suspect it. They've heard rumors, but they haven't had their proof. And there are some disciples who Jesus decides to appear to in a pretty funny way. I think this is one of the funniest passages of Scripture in the Bible, while at the same time being very touching. It's hilarious. I'll show you why in a moment. Luke 24, verse 13. If you're ready, say amen. amen. Verse 13. That very day, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And what things had happened? Jesus had been crucified. He was made a public spectacle. It looked like darkness had won the day that he was just another maniacal Messiah wannabe, not truly the son of God as he had claimed. They were talking about that. And it says that while they were talking, verse 15, and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. There's so many things in this passage, I'm having to restrain myself, but one of the ways that I see that God works in our life, just very simply, is that these disciples were going away from Jerusalem, where all of the believers were waiting together for Jesus to reappear. And while they're going away from the place where God told them to stay, Jesus shows up and heads them off at the pass, just goes to show that God can appear to you even if you're headed in the wrong direction in your life. It's good news for somebody because you're going the wrong way, you're southbound, but, but, but God can show up even when you're headed in the wrong direction. I thank God for all the times that he cut me off. And I Notice at this point, you know, we, some little sloganized hermeneutic here, and now it's, God's going to cut you off if you're heading the wrong way. Um, okay... And that's a very tortured reading of the text. We continue. I was headed on the wrong path. 
and he had another plan. Well, Jesus shows up himself and appears to them, but then it says something really interesting. He drew near and he went with them, but in verse 16 it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I got to stop and wonder how many times has Jesus appeared in our situation, but we didn't know it was him. We didn't recognize it. And here we go again. Narcissistic reading of the text. How many times has Jesus appeared to you, but you didn't recognize him? Yeah, I, I'm afraid that uh, that you're going to hear me beating my head against my desk going, no, 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 no. This is not how you handle the text. God the Holy Spirit did not have this written by the Apostle Luke or Luke the Evangelist, sorry, so that uh, so that you can say, oh, how many times has Jesus appeared to me and I didn't know it? Notice every single time he cracks off a verse, he turns it around and makes it about him. But Luke 24 is not about Stephen Furtick. It's not about you. It's not about me, Okay. Um, so here we go. I'm going to read it for you uninterrupted so that you can kind of get what's going on here because uh, we're only a few verses into this passage and Stephen keeps making it about me or you or him or whatever. Okay, It's not about any of that. Okay, It's the day of the resurrection. It's Sunday morning after Friday's crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The women had gone to the tomb, came back, and said they had, you know, that that, that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? And so they went back, and the disciples didn't believe. Verse twelve says Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Okay, that's what's going on. It's Easter Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Notice, it doesn't say anything about them being disobedient to Jesus' commands. It doesn't explain why they're going to Emmaus. It just says that they're going. Jesus comes alongside of them and uh, drew near and went along with them. But their eyes were held. The Greek says that their eyes were held so they couldn't recognize him. He said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. Okay? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were hoping he was the Messiah. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things have happened, and moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. 
but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Who do you think that Jesus thought the Old Testament was about? It was about him. So on this seven-mile walk, Jesus opens to them all of the scriptures and preaches to them himself. Not you, not me, not Stephen Furtick, not my situations currently in my life, not your situations currently in your life, or nothing about you. He opens up the scriptures to them and preaches to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The scriptures are about Christ. The way the ancient church fathers discuss this, in fact, Clement of Rome in his epistle to the church at Corinth, he describes it as the scarlet thread. Okay, so what happens is, is that when Clement mentioning, mentioning the story of the prostitute in Jericho who saved the spies of Israel, who then later becomes the great, great grandmother of, of, of King David. Okay, she is the one who survives Jericho and the, the, the children of Israel taking Jericho, right? They had made a pledge with her, and they said, as long as you keep this scarlet thread outside of your window, you'll survive. Well, Clement of Rome picks up on that theme, and he, he talks about the fact that that's the scarlet thread that runs through all of church history, or runs through all of the biblical text that points us to the shed blood of Christ. And that's exactly what's going on. When you read the Old Testament, it begins with the creation and then the creation of man, man's disobedient fall by disobeying God and breaking the covenant that was established, that God had established with man, and disobey God, man's fall, and how every human being born to Adam and Eve was born dead in trespasses and sins and only evil all of the time, even from youth, Genesis says, right? But see, when Adam and Eve fell, God, when he gave out his punishments, also gave a promise. There was a promise for a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And then the story continues by following the particular genetic line of a particular group of people through the history of the ancient world, specifically centering in and around Israel and Judea and Egypt. You know, from Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses, you know, Judah, David, Sam, you know, uh, uh, Samuel, uh, you know, all the way down. And what are we doing? We're following the line of the King of Kings to ultimately we come to the greater son of King David, Jesus Christ, the one promised in the prophets, the ones spoken about by Moses himself, right? 
And Jesus is unfolding to them from the Old Testament, from the prophets, from Moses, all of the things about him, because the whole story of Scripture is about God's rescue through the promised seed of the woman, and that promised seed of the woman is Jesus Christ, who on the cross at this point just three days earlier crushed the head of the serpent by dying for the sins of the world. That's what the scriptures teach, right? So Jesus here is preaching about himself from all of the scriptures. It's about him. So they drew near to the village, verse 28, It drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now, he was at table with them. He took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Thursday night comes to mind at this point. Monday, Thursday. On Thursday night, you have the very, very, very first Lord's Supper where Jesus hijacks the Seder dinner and a particular part of the liturgy in the Passover uh, evening meal. Jesus hijacks it and makes it all about himself. And we read about this in, in, in the gospel text. And if you attend a church where the Lord's Supper is regularly, weekly uh, uh, partaken of, then you'll, you'll, if you'll remember the words in the communion liturgy. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. In the same way also, he took the cup after sup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take and drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the New Testament shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Right? Okay. So, they drew near to the village. Jesus stayed. He takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he, how they knew, knew him, how they had known him in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. For they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your mind? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when they he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, 
Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate with them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts, which is part two of this work written by the evangelist Luke, we learn of what the apostles did. They obsessed about preaching about Jesus. This was recorded by the evangelist Luke not to tell you things about yourself, but to proclaim to you what Jesus has done for you, and to specifically point you out that point out to you that Jesus makes it clear that the scriptures are about him. They're not about you. They are about what he did for you, not what they're not written about you. You are not the center of the story. You you play the part of the person born dead in trespasses and sins at war with God whom Christ died for long before you even took your first breath. All of this was accomplished without your help, without your input, and without anything to do with you. This was done for you. Okay? Now that we've read this, we continue with Stephen Furtick's mishandling of this text. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? Anytime Jesus asks a question, it's not because he needs information. It's because he's trying to surface something. So, so he asked him, hey, what y'all talking about? Even though he completely knows and could quote not only the things they were saying, but tell them some of the things that they were thinking that they didn't say. And uh, it says there that they stood still looking sad. Jesus can appear to you even when you're disappointed. See, some of you came into church today feeling sad. I- Jesus can appear to you even when you're feeling disappointed. Really? Um, which of the people attending Elevation Church has Jesus appeared to? That would make them witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Hmm? What are you talking about? This text doesn't teach that. Each verse you read, you then reinterpret it and mangle it and make it about you or somebody else, and it's not. This verse is not teaching that Jesus will appear to you. I can just be honest with you, if I may, for a moment. You look sad. Um, some of you look sad. And, and I just want you to know, God can show up in that situation too, even when your countenance is down, even when it seems like... Uh, life's coming really hard against you because Jesus shows up and he asks them a question even though they're going in the wrong direction and they're looking sad. And, and then it says in verse 18 that one of them named Cleopas, now we know why he was sad because his mom named him Cleopas, <laughs> answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Check this out. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days. They're asking the only one who really knows what's going on. Don't you know what's going on? And so Jesus plays dumb. In verse 19 it says, and he said to them, what things? 
And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then they proceed to teach Jesus about Jesus. See, this is hilarious. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped everybody could insert something here in your life that you hoped for that didn't seem to happen the way you hoped that it would. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So now their hope that Jesus was the Messiah somehow translates into you know, the things that you hoped for in, in your life but didn't come to pass. With each verse, he twists it and makes it about you and me and him, and it's not about us. We had hoped. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They're at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Jesus wasn't there, verse 25, and they said that he said back to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And check this out. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He didn't quote the scriptures about himself. He was the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he starts telling them everything about himself that he himself wrote in the Bible. must have been amazing to hear him unfold that walking along this seven-mile road. Right. Preaching about himself from all of the sections of scripture, all of scripture. And so he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. You ever feel like God's going to leave you? or Maybe he's left you or maybe he's exiting your situation. Again, notice he's making this about you. We're allegorizing the text so we can make it about you. This is some kind of cosmic allegory all about you and your life and you feeling like God's going to leave you. This is not what this text is about at all. God never intends to leave you. He simply wants to provoke you to understand your need for him. The reason God plays hide and seek is not because he doesn't want you to find him, but because he wants you to learn how to look so you can see him at a deeper level than you ever have before. And this text doesn't say anything of the sort. And that's not why the Holy Spirit had Luke pen those words. So Jesus acts like he's going to go on and drop him off at the hotel. But it says in verse 29 that they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening. And the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them and God always will. If you call out to him and say, stay with me, Lord, don't leave me. He'll draw near to you. This is not what this text says. He'll stick closer than any friend you've ever had. Then it says in verse 30, this will be important in a moment, that when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Nothing abnormal about this, by the way. They were hungry. They walked seven miles. He took it, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. So verse 31 kind of comes out of nowhere to me. Because think about it now. 
They didn't recognize Jesus on that whole seven-mile stretch where he started with Moses and ended with Malachi, explaining everything pertaining to himself that they could ever want to know. But when he sits down at the table and does something so simple, so common, something you do every day, here's what the Bible says in verse 31. That after he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, it says in verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. They went back to the place where they should have been all along, because now Jesus had appeared. I'm believing that's going to happen in someone's life in our church today, that you've been going the wrong direction, but Jesus is going to appear to you, and you're going to get back to Jerusalem where you belong, in the place where, where God is. See, notice what he just did. Just allegorize, allegorize the text, and you're going to get back to Jerusalem where you belong, and da-da-da, yeah. That's not why God, the Holy Spirit, had these words written. All of this passage, this entire passage, is about Jesus. And even Jesus preaches to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus about himself from all of the scripture. This isn't about you returning to some Jerusalem. This is an utterly narcissistic reading of this text. And it's taking the glory away from Christ. And putting it on ourselves. This is not what this text means. It's called you to. I believe that's going to happen today. And they found the 11, verse 33, part B, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they said, Oh, you think that's something? Let us tell you what happened on the road. And then it says they told how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. While I sat in St. Paul's Cathedral and I watched people taking communion, this verse came to my mind. How Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And you know, there must be something deeper here happening than simply Jesus just sharing a meal with these men. Because if all he did was share a meal, certainly that wouldn't be revelatory enough to open their eyes to the fact that this is a dead man walking. There must have been something more. Maybe in the way Jesus broke the bread, there was something that the disciples saw of the way God has always worked and does always work in our lives. Maybe in the breaking of the bread, they saw something about the way God always works in our lives. Again, the communion language is so, so dripping in this passage. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood in the New Testament, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
yeah, there's a lot, there's more going on there, and it's a clear reference to communion. It has nothing to do with the normal pattern which God normally operates in our lives. See, that little sentence right there continues with and expands now the narcissistic reading of this text. This is a text that announces and demonstrates to us that Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day, and now Stephen Furtick is turning this into something about himself. Unbelievable. That he took it, and he blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to them. If you go back to Luke 22, when Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, it was the first time that they ever took what we would call today communion. It says that when Jesus sat down to eat with them, same thing it says here in Luke 24, that he took the bread and he blessed it, or he gave thanks, and he broke it. Okay, now notice as he's telling these the steps, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. Aha, there's a pattern here. <gasps> and this is the pattern apparently of how God works in our life. He blesses, he breaks, he... Oh, what? see, ta-da, we've cracked the code of these passages. Because it's not about Jesus, it's about you. And he gave it to them. But if you go back even further to Luke chapter 9, it talks about how there were 5,000 men and women and children who were hungry one day, and the disciples didn't know where they were going to get any food to feed them. So Jesus took what little they had, and you know what it says he did? It says that he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 11, maybe, where it says that when we take the Lord's Supper, and the Apostle Paul says, I passed on as a first importance that which I also received, that Christ took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it. And he gave it to them. I wonder here if there's not some deeper meaning that God intends for us to get out of this sequence or this pattern. Uh, yeah, and there's the big problem. So now the, it doesn't mean, it, doesn't, it isn't about Jesus. There's some sequence here. There's some hidden pattern so that we can, we can crack the code of this pattern and we can see how God operates in our life. Well, the reality is, is that, um, well, if there's a pattern, it's how Jesus handles bread. Yeah. Um, and to talk about the pattern of how Jesus handles bread is to kind of miss the whole point of the passage. I talk about missing the forest because of a tree. Wonder if it's not something that's indicative of the pattern of not only the way that God handles bread, but the way he handles every life that he ever uses. Don't we see the same pattern? Now, notice something. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that this is a pattern that demonstrates how God operates in each and every life. Nowhere does it say that. He's making this look like this is biblical teaching by drawing some pattern. This is the Furtick Code. 
the bread-breaking code that's hidden in the scriptures, and Stephen Furtick is the guy who's cracked it. And yet there's nobody in all of church history who's ever preached this message. Not in the church fathers. It's not in the apostles. Hmm. This is not... Because when you know, in each and every time these passages come up in the ancient church, <laughs> this one in particular, it's all about Jesus and his resurrection. The point is, he's alive. The point is not, oh, there's a pattern here with how God operates in our life. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus is alive, physically, bodily alive. <sighs> pattern in the life of Abraham in the scriptures. If you're not a Bible scholar, let me catch you up. He, he took Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, his homeland, and he blessed him with riches and, and wealth, but then he broke him because he was married to a woman who had a barren womb and he couldn't have a child and, and he was getting old in age and it looked like he wasn't going to have an heir to carry on his legacy and fulfill God's promise. But then He gave him a son named Isaac, and then God took Isaac from the barren womb of Sarah, and then he blessed Isaac. He he blessed Isaac to be the heir of the promise, but then he broke him when, when his father Abraham had to take him up on Mount Moriah and almost offered him as a sacrifice, but then he gave him to, to be the heir of the promise, and, and, and the lineage of Abram continued. Note, apparently, uh, this this code that uh, Furtick has cracked here in the breaking of the bread that shows a pattern in how God works in all of our lives. Now, the code is everywhere. We could see this pattern everywhere. This proves that he has exegetical and hermeneutical insight that nobody else has. This is missing the whole point of the text. Looking for the deeper meaning, we've lost the real meaning. Through Isaac, isn't this what God did through Moses when, when God took Moses and he took him from the, the weeds and he took him and put him in a basket. All of the firstborn children of Israel were being murdered and, and yet God took Moses in a, in a basket that was pitched with, with tar and, and then he, he blessed him. He blessed him to be raised up in the house of Pharaoh and then, and then he broke Moses in 40 long years in the wilderness but then he gave him to be, to be not only the leader of a nation but to be the greatest leader that that nation had ever known and to bring them out of Egypt. Isn't this what God did with Joseph when he, when he, Uh, again, um, do I need to remind him of what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus? Um, yeah, let me point that out to you. Um, um, uh, so uh, here's what happened. Um, Jesus, it says verse 25, Luke 24, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures are about Jesus. 
So here is Stephen Furtick's reading of this text. Oh, well, now looking, oh, look, he's found the bread breaking code all over the Old Testament. Oh, and it shows how God operates in everyone's lives. Oh, there's a pattern. And it's a pattern that God, so that you can see if this pattern's occurring in your life, to see if you can be great like all the people in the Bible, too. And yet, Jesus pointed out to those guys that. The Old Testament's written about him, not you, not me. And uh, this code, yeah, the, he got there via dubious uh, hermeneutics. This is just not in the text. Took him out of the pit where his brothers had betrayed him, and he blessed him in the house of Potiphar to be the ruler of everything that was in his charge. But then he broke him in the prison, and he and he left him alone. But but he gave him to be the prince of Egypt, and, and he was able to say at Genesis 50 verse 20, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good, to the saving of many lives." Isn't this the way God always works? Yeah, see, God's going to save many lives through you, too. You can be the Savior, too. Isn't that the way that God gave us Jesus? That he took him from the womb of Virgin Mary, and he blessed him with miracles and signs and wonders as he walked this earth, and then he broke him on a mountain called Calvary. And he gave him to be the savior of the world. In your life and in my life. Now, notice he didn't explain what we need a savior for. Well, it just... See, it was that little recitation that had something to do with the gospel was all about seeing Jesus' life fits into the pattern of this code that he's cracked. This is the way God works. And when we take communion, we're remembering first and foremost the sacrifice of Jesus who was taken. First and foremost, that's what we're remembering? Huh, I wonder what the second thing is. From his throne in heaven, willingly came down and was blessed and affirmed by and then broken by his heavenly father but broken because of our sin and now has been given to us so that we can receive the full measure of his life and so now we've got to see this pattern um see now you need to look to your life to see what you've been taken from see how god has blessed you and then broken you so that he can give you just like he did jesus See, just like everybody else, this is the pattern. We're now going to look at your life and see what stage are you in. Are you in the uh, the God-taking-you stage? Are you in the God-blessing-you stage? Or are you in the God-breaking-you stage? Or are you in the God-giving-you stage? And knowing through the breaking of the bread. But also as you take communion, I want you to think about what God is doing in your own life. Because the fact is, when God decides to use your life, this pattern that was established in Luke 24, Luke 22, Luke chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So this pattern now, it's, it, you need to look to what God's doing in your life. So when you take communion, this is the other thing you need to be thinking about. This pattern that Jesus himself established. 
So this pattern that apparently Jesus established. See, ta-da, this is now a new theology. Is the pattern of how God uses and how God works in the life of every man and woman that he's ever used. In your life today, you're in one of the stages that I just described. Uh-huh, right, yeah. Like I said, this is a narcissistic reading of the text. He, he looked for the deeper meaning. He found it in this pattern, and now he's applying it to you so we can make this verse all about you in your life, not Jesus and his life for you. Unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> the word satanic comes to mind. You're either in the taking stage, the blessing stage, the breaking stage, or the giving stage. When you're in the taking stage, it can be uncomfortable. I remember when we first moved here to Charlotte to start the church. Everything was so unfamiliar to me. This was just a little over six years ago. And And here we go again. Another recitation of the incredible miracles of Stephen Furtick. Yeah, (laughs) more stories from the life of Stephen Furtick. There's a reason why I play Carly Simon's You're So Vain whenever I do a Stephen Furtick update. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. Yeah, the reason why I play that is because of this kind of preaching. I remember one specific day I was driving to meet with another pastor in the city. At this point, our church didn't have any people or money or buildings or success. It's depressing just to think about it again, how scary those days were of feeling like God had given us a promise. But yet, we didn't really know how it was going to happen. I was meeting with a pastor, and I was driving around in my 1990 Jeep Cherokee, and I didn't have a GPS. I was completely lost all the time for the first six months that I lived in Charlotte. I I do want to let you all know that Stephen Furtick is nowhere mentioned in Luke chapter 24. Just want to let you know that neither is his Jeep Cherokee or the city of Charlotte, North Carolina would drive around, uh, and I remember this one day that I was just looping back and forth on 485, wondering why it's called inner and outer and why it can't be called something else other than that, and cursing this city in my heart. But I was about 30 minutes late for the meeting with the pastor, and when I got there, uh, he said to me, um, good luck here in Charlotte. It's not really a great city to start a church. There's churches in every elementary, middle school, and high school. And I've seen a lot of guys like you come in with high hopes and try to make it, but they didn't. But let me know if I can ever help you in any way. That's what he said to me. (laughs) I got back in my car, got lost on my way home. And I remember driving around, lost in my car, thinking, God, why did you take me out of a comfortable life that I had where I knew what I was doing? And I had a paycheck, and I had some certainty. And I had, and I had, and I had, and I had, and I did this, and I did that, and I, I, I. It's all about him. And I was familiar. Why did you take me out of that and bring me into this? The thing about when... Gasp, look, that... 
pattern happened in his life too. He was taken from what he was comfortable with. I bet he was going to then explain how he was blessed. And then he might even talk about how he was broken so that he can be given. When God it, 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 Just weird reading of the text. Absolutely narcissistic. God is taking you is that you don't usually know where he's taking you. <laughs> Nobody in here knows what I'm talking about. I mean, it'd be great if God was taking you and you knew exactly where you were going. But the thing about God taking you is when he's taking you, all you know is that you're not where you were anymore. And when God is taking you, sometimes he's taking you out of situations and and comfort zones, and sometimes he's taking you out of relationships. And, and yes, now just remember, this has supposedly this is all sound exegetical uh, insights from the Road to Emmaus story in Luke twenty-four. So I remind you of all that. And when God is taking you, if anybody in here is in the taking stage right now, you know it can be a really disorienting experience. I, I think the disciples were kind of in a taking stage at this point where, where they didn't know what was next. And, and God is often taking you in your life, and, and he's taking you, some of you. Yeah, so how, do you, how can you tell the difference between the different stages? I mean, does God send you an email to let you know that you've transferred from the taking stage to the blessing stage, or does it just happen suddenly and you have to just kind of figure it out? You just lost your job. God is taking you. And if you knew what the other job was going to be and when it would start, that would be fine. But you don't. And all you know is, God, you're taking me. And, and, and the children of Israel knew about this because all they wanted when they got free from Egypt was to go back to a place they were familiar with, even though they hated it while they were there. See, when God is taking you, even if you hate where you come from, at least you knew where you were. Oh, yeah, that's deep. And when God has taken you, there can be a lot of uncertainty. I wonder if anyone is in the taking stage today. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been worried about that for at least the last 15 minutes. Today, God is taking you. Somebody just broke up with you. Somebody just walked away from you. Someone just dismissed you. Something just changed in your life so radically, and you go, God. Someone just sent me a tweet challenging the gospel I preached on my latest worship CD. Where are you taking me? And the answer to that isn't clear. All you know is that he is. He's taking you. Sometimes in your life, God is taking you. The good news is that God does not take you in order to deprive you. Oh, whew. I'm so glad that that's the good news. Yeah, uh-huh. He takes you so he can bless you. Yeah, you ought to clap. <laughs> Clapping about themselves. Your hands. It's a good place to clap. And I'll be honest with you, I feel like I have received so much more of the blessing of God than I've ever deserved in my life. Is there anybody in here like me who would say, God has blessed me. I have seen the blessing of God. Yeah, by the way, none of this is sound biblical th theology. This is not correct hermeneutics. Do you think that Albert Muller would approve of this sermon? The reason I ask is because, well, you know, Stephen Furtick did attend Southern Theological Seminary for a while while Albert Muller was uh, president. I, it makes me wonder. I mean, did you think that this is the type of hermeneutics uh, that they teach at Southern Seminary? Yeah, I don't think so. I think this might be, he learned how to preach this way, not from a good hermeneutics class, 
but really from listening to T.D. Jakes over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, which kind of proves that, again, you can't gather good fruit from a bad tree. Rots your theology in a really bad way. Now, I promised at the beginning of the program that I would read to you a section from the prophet Jeremiah. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Jeremiah chapter 29. Yeah, that's right. The same chapter that everybody reads out of context, you know, regarding the, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You know, that that section. But I'm going to read a little bit farther in the chapter. I'm going to start at verse 20. The prophet Isaiah, uh, not Isaiah, Jeremiah writes to the, uh, well, the exiles in Israel. Here's what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Koliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah to Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the Lord who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Continues. By the way, so the the outrageous thing that was done in Israel... Uh, well, these prophets were lying, were using God's name and speaking lying words that God did not command them. By the way, it's exactly what Stephen Furtick is doing right here. He's preaching lying words. And the technique he used is he wrestled a text about Jesus and made it about you by looking for a deeper meaning and found a pattern and then now is applying this pattern to all of our lives so that we can hear about ourselves. And this is not what the scriptures teach at all. He's preaching lying words. Let me read a little bit more. Verse 24. To Shemaiah. And Nehalam, you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Maasiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the, the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth? Who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah and Nehalem, Because Shemaiah prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nahalam and his descendants, and he shall not have anyone living among his people, that he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. False prophets and false teachers who lie and deceive in God's name 
They are speaking rebellion against the Lord, and God did not send them. God does not look kindly on those who twist and mangle his word and lie about him. And that's what Stephen Burdick is doing here. What he's preaching is a lie. And this lie is taking your eyes off of your risen Savior who died and rose again for your sins and your justification and putting your eyes on yourself. Continuing with your bent-in problem as a sinner, because by nature we are all in curvatus se. This is what the Apostle Paul prophesied about in Second Timothy. The Apostle Paul, writing to young Pastor Timothy in chapter 4, said to him, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It is an absolute myth and hermeneutical crime that there's a pattern here that applies to your life. Are you in the taking stage or are you in the blessing stage? Are you in the bro- breaking stage or are you in the giving Which This text doesn't teach that. Luke chapter 24 teaches that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And Luke chapter 24 teaches that all of the scriptures are about Jesus. Stephen Furtick is lying to these people. And he's preaching rebellion against God as a result of it. And the worst part is is that he's using references to Jesus' dying on the cross and rising from the grave to mask and hide his false doctrine and his false theology to make you feel that what you're hearing is actually biblical and it's not. The Bible doesn't teach any of this narcissistic nonsense. God, not always like I wanted to, but I've seen the blessing of God. I wish you'd turn to somebody sitting next to you and tell them you're sitting beside a blessed person today. Yeah. When God is blessing you, it makes all the taking worthwhile. You know how Garth Brooks wrote that song about he was going to marry this girl and, 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 and God didn't let him, but now he looks at his wife and he goes, Lord, I'm glad, you know, how does it go? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. All he's saying is, I'm so glad you took me out of that so I could get to this. And there are just times in your life where you realize that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've come up here to preach to you people and thought, God, thank you for taking me so you could bring me here so I could have this family and have this opportunity and have this impact. And I'm, I'm glad he took me. You don't always see it in the taking stage, but when you're in the blessing stage, man, there's nothing like it. I, I know you've, you've had at least a season of your life where, where God was just blessing you and God was showing up for you and, and, God was, and God was working through you and God was providing for you. It's a wonderful place to be, man. Don't ever feel ashamed when you're in the blessing stage because you went through the taking stage so you could get to the blessing stage. You may as well enjoy it and thank God for it. I ought to thank God for his blessing. Don't, 
Don't get too cocky, though, because right after the blessing stage, just about the time you put your hand on your hip and let your backbone flip and you want to look at all the people God took you from and say, how you like me now? God picks you up and just about the time he's blessed you real good, you're about to go through the breaking stage and nobody wants to clap for the breaking stage. Yet the scripture says that it was in the breaking of the bread that they recognize Jesus. Yeah, and that's not teaching that there's some breaking stage in our life. Good night. For who he was. I was talking to a gentleman the other day. He said, I've known God. He's been walking with the Lord for 45 years. I've known God through his, his blessings in my life. None of the knowledge I received of him in the blessing stage can compare to what I learned about him in the breaking stage. The thing about it is that God cannot give to the world bread that hasn't been broken. Yeah, you got a verse that says that. wonder if any of you are in the breaking stage of life. That's not like these things happen one time and only one time. I've gone through a 24-hour period where I felt like I went through all four stages in one day. This is the way God works. It's his pattern. And the interesting thing about the breaking stage is that when God breaks you, he has a purpose for it. He breaks bread to give it. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. I also have a little girl who's eight months old. But it's the six-year-old and the four-year-old who have helped me understand more than the eight-month-old about broken things. <laughs> I am an expert in broken things. When my boys break something, it's because they're careless. That's not the way God breaks a life. Not because he's careless, but because he's so carefully made a plan for your life that he knows that the only way he can bless you is to break you. Just rolling our own theology and smoking it right there on the spot. Wow, this is sure innovative. None of this is a valid inference from this text at all. None of this can be exegetically or hermeneutically defended. Uh, This theology rests purely in the mind of Stephen Furtick. The people who are clapping are the people who have learned that the breaking stage is the blessing stage. It's when your pride is broken and your will is broken and sometimes your hopes are broken And sometimes your dreams are broken that you learn that it's not really about you and that there's a power greater than you working in you, but you'd never know that if he never broke you. A.W. Tozer has this quote. I want want you to 
maybe consider writing this down where you can see it. He says, A.W. Tozer says, that it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Yeah, and that has to do with the fact that God uses his law to humble us and bring us to nothing. Yeah, but that's not what he's talking about, is he? Yeah, see, God's law breaks us, shows us that we need a Savior and that our self-righteousness will not stand before God and that we are desperately in need of a Savior. There's a right way to talk about how God breaks people and humbles them. Um, but uh, apparently that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about some particular pattern that he's discovered in the deeper meaning of this passage in Luke 24 so that we don't have to preach about Jesus, we can preach about ourselves. Are any of you in a breaking stage right now in your life? Maybe God is breaking some parts of you that are stubborn. Maybe God has allowed your heart to be broken by something that you can't control in your life. Maybe you have a weakness in your life that God is using to break you of self-reliance. You know, it'd be really easy in the breaking stage to want to go back to the blessing stage. But God- and keep in mind, the fundamental assumption here is God wants to do something big in your life. Something huge and impossible teach you, you know, maybe to pray to the sons to stand still. This is all about you taking your place in the Bible next to, you know, Moses and people like that. God does not give away bread that he hasn't first broken. So you got to decide. Do you want God to use you? Then he's going to have to take you. He's going to have to take you out of situations and circumstances that may even be good but aren't his best for your life. Let him take you. And he's going to bless you. Oh, he's going to bless you. I, he's blessed me. I don't have time to tell you all the ways he's blessed me. I'm talking about far beyond what I ever could have imagined. I'm a living, walking, breathing testimony of the blessing and the goodness of God. And oh, I know I'm a young man, and some of y'all don't want to hear this from me, but I've been broken a time or two. You think as the pastor of a church, I haven't had some, some broken, sleepless nights watching people ruin their lives that I tried to help, watching people turn on you sometimes that said they'd be there for you. You don't think I know what it's like to be broken. I might not have been broken the same way you've been broken, but if you live long enough, you're going to be broken. You're going to be taken and you're going to be blessed and you're going to be broken. But, but let me tell you the part of this passage that isn't explicitly mentioned, but it's implied. And I- yeah, um, you, you stopped preaching this passage a long time ago. Yeah, you're not really preaching the passage anymore. You're preaching yourself into it. You're eisegeting your life into it, all in the name of finding some pattern that had to do with how Jesus broke the bread. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I pray you'll receive this today because it's really the crux of the whole thing. You know, Jesus took the bread and he blessed the bread yeah. and he broke the bread. But yeah. one thing that never changed about the bread the whole time is that the whole time, whether he was taking it or blessing it or breaking it, the bread never left his hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, uh, here's the deal, dude. Um, yeah, I'm not the bread and you're not the bread. And this passage isn't teaching some kind of pattern about how our lives are working out or discovering the 
the way God's going to work in you in order to do something big or anything like that. It, this this is Jesus broke the bread. You know, that's and the big thing was he was alive. You know, because dead people don't normally rise from the grave. I don't know anybody who I in my family that we've put into a coffin six feet under who started walking again and talking with people and asking for food, you know. Uh, so this is a passage about Jesus being raised from the dead, and at this point you're off topic, trying to find some hidden deeper meaning about some pattern about breaking bread so that you can preach yourself into this text? Like I said, this is a crime that you're committing. What are you trying to say to me today, preacher? I'm saying you're still in his hands. A, t- a text about Jesus' resurrection, and the, the, his point is, you're still in his hands. Uh-huh. You might be broken, but you're still in his hands. And you're still in your sins, too, if this is what you think the Christian Christianity is about. You, you might be uncomfortable, but you're still in his hands. When you're blessed, understand that you're still in his hands. And if he ever takes his hand off of you, you're no longer blessed anymore because you're always in his hands. And I thought somebody could use the encouragement today to just make a fresh declaration about who God is and the way he works, just to be affirmed today. So now you want people to affirm your false reading of this text uh-huh by having people look at their life experience and go oh yeah i think i see that pattern in my life too goody goody it's all about me that in every season of your life when you're taken when you're blessed when you're broken you're in his hands and he has a purpose through it all that he may give you to the world god is Unbelievable. So God's going to give you to the world. Is a giver, for he so loved the world that he gave his son, but he could not give him until he broke him. So God so loves the world that he's going to give you to the world too. So, I mean, this is, I, I just, I, there's, I don't even have the words anymore. This is so breathtakingly narcissistic. That the the again the word I keep coming to is satanic. I mean, if you've ever read the Satanic Bible, Anton Lavey basically said Satanism isn't about Satan; it's about you. It's all about exalting yourself and actualizing yourself and and fulfilling your desires and all this kind of stuff. I mean, at this point, Stephen Furtick is preaching you in a text about Jesus's resurrection. I mean. Words are beginning to fail at this point. And people are clapping. Yeah, because they're having their itching ears tickled by this guy. Well, I'm really important. I, I think, I, you know, and people are going to leave going, hmm, I wonder what stage I'm in. I'm, am I in the taking stage, the blessing stage, or the breaking stage, or the giving stage? Because God so loved the world that he gave me to the world. Isn't that great? For any of my brothers and sisters in the house today, 
at our locations around the city of Charlotte, at our global sites around the world. As we enter into a time of worship here in just a moment, time of taking communion together, I wanted to encourage you that you're in the master's hands today. And God. So now we're switching to communion and you're in the master's hands. We're going to take communion because you're the bread. God knows exactly what he's doing with your life. If you just stay in his hands, he'll use it. More Cue sappy music for manipulation and emotional control. More than you ever thought he could or would, he'll use it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for a moment, I wanted to know if there's anybody in the house today who would honestly admit to say, you know, Pastor Stephen, I am in a breaking stage of life right now. And today, as you were preaching, I sensed that God was saying to me that I just need to remember that I'm in his hands. And Pastor, I want you to pray with me that I would just stay in God's hands. See, even when you're full of doubt, you're in his hands. That's what I came to minister to you today. That's what I wanted you to know, that even when you're frustrated with yourself because you keep screwing up again and again and again, you're in his hands. Even when you're even when you're embarrassed because you're not as far along as you want to be, you're in his hands. Even when you feel like a failure as a parent or a husband or a wife, even when you're lonely, you're in his hands. You might feel forsaken, but you're not forsaken. You're in his hands. You never leave his hands. Your life is in his hands. Your future is in his hands. Your hopes are in his hands. Your dreams are in his hands. Your hope, your future, your dreams. You, 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 you. Uh-huh. Your purpose is in his hands. And if you're in a season right now where you say, God is breaking me and he's teaching me. And yeah, what if I'm not in the breaking stage? What if I'm in the, you know, in the taking stage? I mean, can you like pre-pray for me? You know, because I know the breaking stage is coming. And I just need you to pray for me that I would stay in his hands during this time and that God would encourage me if that's you at every single location. Well, I don't read anywhere in the passage that the bread jumped out of Jesus's hands because it didn't like being broken. I mean, yeah, maybe that doesn't work hermeneutically either. Would you just gently slip your hand up in the air right now? I want to believe God with you. Slip it up. Don't be ashamed. Slip it up. Nothing ashamed of to be broken. Everybody who God ever used was broken. Yeah, notice the people aren't broken because of their sins, because God is holy and got to judge them because of their sinfulness. No, uh, they're just, they just need a little bit of an encouragement, some nudge, a little bit of hope to know that they're going to get through the current bad situation in their life and, and they can chalk it up to they're going to be somebody great as soon as they push through the breaking stage. Keep your hand up in the air. I want to pray for you. If you're not ashamed to say, God, I'm broken, but here I am. Lord, I pray for all of the people today who are in a stage of breaking in their life. Yeah, which is like a total fiction. Like, um, this text doesn't teach that at all. Fill their hearts with knowledge and certainty that you never bring pain without purpose. Help them to see the purpose in the pain. God, we thank you that the purpose of your breaking is your blessing. And your glory and your provision are about to be poured out through the lives of everyone who will stay in your hands. You can put your hands down. And I want to ask at every single location that you would stand to your feet in a spirit and attitude of worship. 
as we transition into a time of communion. In just a moment, some of our pastors at each location are going to come out and give you instructions on exactly how to take communion. I would advise you to not use this time to slip out or start thinking about something else. But Yeah, because if you do that, God will whip out the breaking stage on you to punish you for doing that. You know, there's real power in this thing called communion. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ, it's, it's more than just a symbol. It, yeah, I agree. It's an act of worship. And there may be some of you here today who, you know what, the step for you during this time isn't to come take some bread and drink some juice. There are many of you here today, hundreds of you, who have never put your life in the hands of Jesus. You've known some facts about him, and uh, maybe you could pass a pop quiz, but, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, beware. You don't want to be in Jesus' hands. He'll break you. You never placed your life in his hands, and all of your life has to be in his hands. And you have to be willing to say, God, here I am, and I'm trusting you, and I'm not dependent on myself to, to earn a right relationship with you. Here I am, God. Here's my life. Break it, take it, use it. Here I am. Yeah, notice, I, I got I to point this out. I pointed this out yesterday. Um, the gospel message is that Jesus was broken, pierced, and crushed for you. He offered himself for you. The gospel is not you offering you to him. Some of you need to make that first step today. And uh, while we're taking communion, you know what you can do? You can just find one of our ushers who will be helping people receive communion. And you just put your hand on their shoulder and say, I need to begin a relationship with God today. And we got people trained to help you with that. Not going to embarrass you. Uh, not going to make a fool out of you. Uh, we just want to help you. The majority of you in this room have made a decision to follow Christ, but every situation you can imagine is represented in this room today. Some people who need to draw near to God, your walk with him is going in the wrong direction. And then some of you who are really living for God, but you're being tested right now. And then some of you who are being blessed in great ways, and you just need to rejoice and say, God, I'm going to stay in your hands as you bless me. As we take communion today, let's focus on the work that Jesus has done for us. And let's also focus on the work that he's doing in us. And This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I didn't see anything in Jesus' institution of communion for you to think about yourself. Communion is not a time for you to be thinking about you. It's to be thinking about Christ and his body, his blood, broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now we've got a new meaning for communion. Communion is about Jesus and you. You think of, oh man, I just, back this up. I mean, this is just blasphemy. It's utter narcissistic blasphemy. For us, and let's also focus on the work that he's doing in us and take a moment and reflect as we sing and take communion. You're going to have the opportunity to not only come and partake of the elements, but also to sing a song of worship. So I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, I want my campus directors to go ahead and take your place on the stage at each location and be ready to give us instructions for how to proceed in this time of worship. God, I pray that you Okay, done, done. I, I mean, I, seriously. 
he is absolutely watering down the scriptures. The passages that are about Jesus, he's literally shoving Jesus out of the way and putting himself and you right in the middle of that of those passages. This is narcissism. This is the incurvatu say. This is not biblical preaching. This is not preaching Christ. This is a man who preaches himself and tries to teach you to follow him, follow along with his delusions of his own grandeur. You can be great like him. That's not the biblical message. That's why I read all of Luke 24 and repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be declared in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Did you hear anything about repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Not a word. Not a word. He doesn't preach the biblical gospel. And here's the deal. Someone might be tempted to say, well, you know, Chris, you know, you're just uh, judging him because you're coming from a... Uh, a uh, Lutheran tradition, you know, but you got to understand he comes from a different tradition. Really, which tradition would that be? Do you think this is representative of Baptist theology? No, this isn't. I don't see or hear anything in here that's even remotely similar to what's taught in the London Baptist Confession. You think maybe he's a Presbyterian? No, this isn't Reformed theology either. This isn't even Arminianism. Arminius had more theological chutzpah and 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 at least some ethic in his hermeneutics than uh, than Stephen Furtick does. This isn't even Arminianism. This is Furtickism. This is not any Christian tradition that you can find on the planet. This is not Wesley. This isn't Calvin. This isn't Luther. This isn't Augustine, Irenaeus, Clement of Rome, Polycarp. This, I mean, this, this is a theology all hand spun by, well, Stephen Furtick. This is no Christian tradition that exists anywhere on the planet or ever has. Because any true Christian church, regardless of the label on the door, will preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and understands the scriptures are about Jesus, not you and not me. This man needs to repent. He needs to repent because he's doing an outrageous thing in the church of God, preaching lies in the name of God. He's preaching rebellion because that's what it is. When you take a passage that's about Jesus and you literally smuggle Jesus out of the passage and put yourself into it, that is rebellion against Jesus. And things don't go well for false teachers and false prophets who, who preach and teach the delusions and dreams of their own minds. Never goes well for them in the scriptures. Look it up. This is not Christianity. This is not Christian doctrine. This is flat-out delusions of grandeur narcissism, masquerading in using biblical terms. This man doesn't preach Christ. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. 
Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.